As we begin this morning, I just want to point out something, something that some of y'all are probably fully aware of, maybe some of y'all haven't given a lot of thought up to, but uh, the, this, the truth is, is that we are living in a, uh, we're living in a new cultural moment. And kind of relatively, over the last, you know, two decades or three decades, uh, the ground that, that we've been standing on has shifted in some pretty major ways to where, you know, uh, many sociologists would say that we have we've moved from a period that was kind of considered as uh, a, a Christianized culture. Not a Christian culture, not everyone believed in Christianity or that Christianity was the dominant, but Christianized in the sense that it was a mixture, our culture was a mixture of Christian ideas, the secular ideas, but Christianity kind of had a key influential place within society. And, uh, but over the last uh, two, three decades, that's really begun to change. Now sociologists would say that we've kind of entered into what they're calling the, the post, post-Christian culture. Have you heard that term before, post-Christian culture? Yeah. And, and John Tyson, who's a pastor of the church in uh, the church in the city in New York, uh, he, he uh, makes some observations about the post-Christian culture. And he, he classifies that it can really be summed up in three major shifts. And the first shift that he says is that, Christ, uh, that Christians have shifted from being a majority to a minority. And uh, in our country, and specifically in, in a number of key cities in our nation, including Austin, Texas, where now only 24% of the people in our city uh, claim to be Jesus followers. All right, so that's a shift. That's not how it used to be just even like three, four decades ago. The second shift, Tyson points out, is that, is that Christianity has moved from the center of our society to the fringe. Right? So there was a time not too long ago when Christians were at the center of power and influence in our nation, for better or for worse. But now, as a general rule, general rule, our faith is being moved out of the public square. The church, specifically, no longer occupies a position of privilege, or credibility, or influence that it once did. And then the third shift that Tyson points out is that Christians have gone from being well-respected to disrespected. That uh, even just a few decades ago, dec decades ago, Christians were oh, well-esteemed. That the majority of non-Christians still have a high view of their Christian neighbors or co-workers. However, increasingly, our society carries a negative connotation towards Christians and often labels us as weird, at best, or uh, dangerous, at worst, uh, many hope believing in our post-Christian uh, society that even the Christian moral ethic is, is repressive or oppressive, and therefore not good or harmful for our society. Welcome to church. <laughs> good morning. So glad that we're here. Uh, yeah, I, I point that out to, to get us going this morning, uh, not to rally the troops to say we got to take that. <laughs> not at all. In fact, I personally believe that Christianity is at its best when we're working from the margins and we're uh, not from a place of power, certainly from the outside in. But 
Um, so that's not my point. The point in, in bringing this up is just to say, really just to name it. Like this, is, this is the water we're swimming in. This is our cultural moment. And in naming it, I also want to just you know, admit that makes following Jesus hard. Y'all feel that? Like, I mean, following Jesus is always God, it's difficult because we have a sin nature. And so we kind of want to go, or we definitely want to go our own way, oftentimes. So that's already working against us, right? But now in this post-Christian culture that we are in, there is a growing, increasing, you know, current tide that we are having to fight against on a social front that feels somewhat new in the landscape of things of the last you know, few decades. And as a result, uh, it's tempting. It's becoming more and more tempting to hide or disassociate or to downplay our connection with Jesus. Because it's just not as socially acceptable or looked on. I mean, it's a good impression. And it's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one of the big reasons why we're seeing the more people today who have formerly were followers of Jesus choose to reject and walk away from Jesus altogether. Following Jesus in our cultural climate is not easy. It feels sacrificial. It feels often uncomfortable. It's hard. And so, uh, why do it? <laughs> or better put, what will keep us doing it? If you are a follower of Jesus, what is it that's strong enough, powerful enough to keep us choosing to follow Jesus when it's sacrificial and when it's hard, when it goes against the cultural tide? What will keep us following him when it's sacrificial? Who has the power to do that? Well, friends, today, the passage that we're looking at, John chapter 13, I think, answers those questions. That this passage, perhaps more than any other passage, in my point of view, just powerfully points us to what has the power to keep us faithfully following Jesus. And so if you will, go to John chapter 13, and we're going to have the words up here on the slide as well, but you can follow along. I do want to... Um, warn you that I'm going to jump around in this passage a little bit, so yeah, we'll stay in John 13, but we're going to kind of not go verse by verse. We're going to just draw out a few things, because see, what, what I want to help you see, kind of wrap your mind around here, is not just what Jesus does. Many of you are very familiar with what Jesus does in this passage, but before we get to that, I want to help you just capture, I want to help you realize who he does it for. And what Jesus does, but who he does it for. And the way I want to point that out for you is by first just drawing out uh, four things that Jesus knew before he did what he did in this passage. Okay, so if you will, follow along with me. John chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, it begins this way. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew, there's our word. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Okay, so what's the first thing Jesus knew? You can sum it up this way. Jesus knew that the hour had come, that the time had come, that he was about to die, and that he's going to be resurrected, and that he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, that he knows his ministry is coming to an end. He knows his death is imminent. 
Okay, keep going, verse 2. I mean, later, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, which just you know, specifically was a reference to his 12 disciples, all right? That, that's who this is talking to, his 12 closest friends. Having loved those guys, he loved them to the end, or as Josh said last week, to the utmost. And then, uh, verse 2, uh, the author of this, the author, uh, John, tells us a little juicy bit of information. <laughs> the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And if we skip down to verse 11, we're told, John makes it clear, that Jesus knew this as well. In fact, verse 11 just states super plainly, he, referring to Jesus, knew who was going to betray him. Now, I want you to recognize that this wasn't a bit of trivia for Jesus. This was emotionally troubling to him. In fact, if you skip down to verse 21, we're told, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. That phrase, huh, troubled in spirit, it's, it's used also in John chapter 11. If you're familiar with that passage, with Jesus is uh, sees uh, Mary and many others weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus. We're told that Jesus in that moment gets troubled in spirit and he begins to weep. Like when he troubled in spirit, he, Jesus is emotionally wrecked by the fact that on this night he's sitting across from his friend Judas and he knows this guy's about to betray me. Betray me, hand me over to be killed. Like that is weighing heavy on Jesus. And so he blurts out, one of you is going to betray me. And the way that the disciples respond to that it would be uh, comical if it wasn't so sad. Keep reading, verse 22, it says, His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, the author of this, his way of referring to himself, which is comical, for sure. It's unbelievable. But that's John. He says, The one Jesus loved was reclining next to him, and Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. And so leaning back against Jesus, he, John, asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon the Scare. Which is kind of a weird interchange. It's like, why don't you just say, it was Jesus. <laughs> but... Um, Commentators would, would, would just highlight um, that in that culture, like the, the serving someone a piece of food was an intimate act of friendship. Because I, I think that Jesus does it this way because he is torn up over what Judas is about to do. And he is saying, Judas, don't do it. And he, he's handing him this food, food as a way to say, hey, stay with me, friend. Don't do it. Unfortunately, verse 27 
said, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him, which is a mysterious thing. I'm not really sure how to describe what that was like, thankfully. So uh, Jesus uh, told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him, since Judas had charge of the money. Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to go uh, give something to the poor. And so as soon as Jews had taken the bread, he went out, and it was not. Okay, uh, just just quick aside here. I make this point at times, but uh, I think it's really helpful, is that um, one of the reasons why I find scriptures in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life in particular just so credible, so trustworthy, it's because the disciples uh, who wrote them made themselves look like idiots. <laughs> Which makes no sense, okay? Because, like, if you remember, like, Jesus dies, he, he rises again, he spends about 40 days with them, and then he goes to the right hand of the Father. Who's left to carry on the movement that Jesus started to get the gospel to the ends of the earth? Who's going to do that? It's these guys. These guys are the leaders of the church for the very get-go. If you're a leader of the church, then you want to make sure that people think highly of you. That they're going to listen to you. They're going to want to learn from you and what you learned from Jesus. And that, you know, you're going to try to, like, prop yourself up. That's the motivation. Now, listen, if you are going to make all of this up, if this is all made up, then you certainly would do that. You would certainly try to make yourself look really good so that people would believe what you had to say so that you could be the leader. <laughs> Why would you make yourself look like a dunce? Why would you make yourself look like an idiot? Oh, yeah, that's the only reason is because this is what actually happened. Jesus, hey, the person who's going to betray me is the person I dipped this bread into, into, it's then punch it to, and they're like, I wonder who it is. It's Judas. Judas, come on. And then also just to say, like, uh, you, if you were making this up, you wouldn't make one of Jesus' inner circle, one of the twelve, be the one. Verse 31, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once, which is a very confusing Jesus way of saying, hey, the, the time has come. Like, it, it's here. But Judas, when he leaves to betray Jesus, it is the first domino that topples that will imminently leave. It's in Jesus' death that the Son will glorify the Father, and that the Father will be glorified in the Son through Jesus' death and resurrection. He's saying, okay, the time has come. So the thought causes him to say the next thing, which is, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. To which Simon Peter But you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? 
I will lay down my life for you. Like, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And I, whatever it costs, I will pay. Like, I just want to be with you. To which Jesus says in verse 38, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me. Jesus knew on this night. That Jesus knew that he was about to die. That his death was imminent. And he knew that Judas was about to betray him. And he knew that Peter, one of his closest friends in the twelve, was about to disown him. Great multiple times. Completely disassociated. And we don't see it in this passage, but one other thing, just kind of a bonus of what Jesus knew, he also knew that all the rest of those guys, his disciples, they were all about to abandon him. In his greatest time of need, when he's on the cross, that they were all going to run and hide as cowards. He knew that as well. And in this passage, we're told that there's also one more thing that Jesus knew. It's found all the way back up in verse 3. Here's what it is. Jesus knew, we're told, that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Okay, now, think about this for a minute, will you? If you knew all that Jesus knew on that night, what would you do? I mean, just like, just imagine with me. You're you're at a dinner party with twelve of your closest friends, and at that party, you are fully aware. Like, you know that one of these guys, one of your closest friends, is about to betray you, like literally hand you over to be killed wrongly, unjustly. That, that would probably really bother you, right? And, and then if you also knew that the one your very closest, one of your very closest friends in the book is about to just completely reject you, to disassociate with you, to dis disown you, to say, I don't have anything to do with that person any longer. And then you know that everyone else that's there is, is about to abandon you in your greatest time of need. And somehow, I don't know how this is happen, but somehow you are also fully aware that for whatever reason, God the Father had given you all the power of the world, right? That he placed all things under you and your power. What do you do in that situation? Ever feel rejected? Ever been betrayed? Ever been abandoned? What are you doing? You have all the power. I, I think of little you know, where Thanos like, snaps his finger and, and people just dissolve. Like, I, I, I would like to think that's not what I would do, but I, it's 50-50, right? Like, I think maybe I'll do that. I think the snap sounds good. That's, that's not what Jesus does. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father put all things under his power. That he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, 
took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet. He began to wash the feet of the betrayer and of the denier and of the cowards who were about to abandon him. He began to wash their feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped in John, verse 1 of this chapter, sums this up by saying, He loved them to the end. This amazes me. I got, I just, this is so powerful. Because when I think about the people who have hurt me or betrayed me or abandoned me, and I tell you, humbling myself to serve them is the furthest exactly what the Son of God does. He doesn't lash out with righteous indignation, though he would completely be justified. Instead, he kneels down and he serves. He voluntarily places himself in a position of a servant. And in doing this, Jesus models for us what true love looks like. For love, according to Jesus, is much more than an emotional feeling, right? It, it's, it's a verb. It, it, it's, it's a voluntary decision to unconditionally take, to unconditionally serve another ahead of yourself. A voluntary decision to unconditionally serve another ahead of yourself. Again, unconditionally, whether they deserve it or, or not. And these guys absolutely did not. <laughs> they did not deserve it. service was on that night of washing the feet, there's actually even more going on here than just that act of service. For this was more than what it appeared to be. That, that just like the Passover meal that they had gathered to eat, this act of foot washing was intended to foreshadow Jesus' uh, ultimate act of love. And this is made clear in his interaction with Peter as he's going to wash Peter's feet. And so, picking back up in verse 6, we read, He, Jesus, came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Which is to pause here. That's the correct response, okay? When, when Jesus goes to wash your feet, we should be like, what? What? what are you, you're going to wash? That, this is not. What are you You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you should never wash my feet. Like, there's just no way I'm going to let you do this. And Jesus answered again, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Which, just real quick, uh, sounds a little extreme, right? Like, I mean, first, like, it's, it's this point that Peter should like, think, like, wait, are we still talking about washing my feet? Like, like, like I know, like, you, you, you don't like dirty feet at dinner, but like, I have no part of you if I keep my feet dirty. Like, what's going on here? Like, but this is Jesus trying to say, like, 
there's more to this than just washing your hands. Like, this is symbolizing something. This is pointing to this foreshadowing something that you don't understand yet. Later you will understand. But Peter doesn't understand. And so again, verse 9, he says, Then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Like if, if I have to be washed to be fully associated with you, to have a part with you, then wash all of me, right? Then give me a bath, which is so Peter said, I want to be as closely associated with you as possible. And then hours later, he's going to disown Jesus. Three times he's going to say, No, I am not with that guy. That's what Jesus, what Peter is about to do. Like about Jesus, and I hear Jesus, I hear Peter say, like, no, then wash all of me, because I want to be as close to you as I would just grab that water, that dirty foot water, and I just throw it on him. <laughs> Such a problem. Why don't you just get out? You're just about to do something. Not stop Jesus. So gently. Those, verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet either. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not every one of you of you is clean. Which is just a reminder. That like Judas was in no room at this moment. Like he just washed Judas's feet. So not all of you are clean. Like who is Judas's? See, the reason Jesus washed his disciples' feet that night is because he was giving his friends who were about to betray him, deny him, and abandon him a picture, a foreshadow of what he was about to do for them on the cross. So here's, there's this place earlier in John, John chapter 10, where Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And in that statement, Jesus is saying, look, I am under no obligation. No one can make me lay down my life. Like, if I do this, it's, it's my choice. And that's a part, friends, of what Jesus is trying to, to foreshadow here in John 13. For everyone there was shocked, and they were amazed that he would voluntarily wash their feet. Like, he didn't owe that to anybody by, you know, by, by any means. In fact, that was the last thing that they would have expected for Jesus to do, which is why Peter reacts the way he does. Lord, what are you doing at my feet? See, the reason Jesus was down at their feet voluntarily serving them, humbling himself by washing their dirt away, is because in less than 24 hours, Jesus would again voluntarily serve them, humbling himself as he is crucified to a Roman cross to wash their sins. Eventually, 
when he, when Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place and he said, do you understand what I have done for you? And I'm sure they're thinking, well, like, yeah, I mean, we understand you just washed, my, washed our feet, which is so weird. And like, why would you, Jesus, do this? Of all people, why, why would you be the one who washed our feet? It's just not right. And it's as if Jesus knows that they're thinking about like why would you do this and so he doubles down on who he is you call me teacher and lord and rightly so for that is what i am i don't forget what i am don't forget who i am i am your teacher i am your lord i'm the one who the father has entrusted all power and authority to don't miss who i am If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Yet I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I have set you an example that you should do what I have done for you. Because in that statement, Jesus gives his followers the ultimate reason for why they are to do what he has called them to do. Now, do you see it? Jesus says, the reason why you should do what I'm calling you to do is because of what I've first done for you. And then he goes on, verse 16, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You put them into practice. Okay, and then on the next day, with those words still ringing in their ears, they would watch Jesus carry his cross to Golgotha and lay down his life. And soon after that, it would begin to dawn on them what Jesus had been communicating to them on that night when he washed their feet. And reflecting on that, John would eventually write these words in 1 John chapter 4. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because he first loved us. His disciples who had abandoned him who had denied him would then go on to spend the rest of their lives worshiping and following his example by loving and serving others and faithfully following Jesus even when it cost them socially physically even when it would cost them losing their own lives on his behalf they stayed faithful and following the way of Jesus because their Lord and teacher had first voluntarily and sacrificially washed their sins away on the cross. Friends, Jesus did not just do that for them. He did that for you and for me. And even though, like his disciples, we have on numerous occasions walked away from Jesus or doubted.
downplayed or connections with Jesus or denied even having anything to do with Jesus. So even though you and I often put ourselves first or we care more about what others think of us or we seek to be served instead of serving others, even though we go our own way so incredibly often, even still, listen, in full knowledge, in full knowledge of our sin and rebellion, he, knowing all of our faults and all of our sin, he still, he still voluntarily laid down his life for you and for me. Loving us to the end, loving us to the utmost, so that we could be washed clean by him and be united to him forever. Even when he knew we would want to walk away from him, he still died for us. Friends, following Jesus faithfully, especially in this cultural climate, And in our cultural moment, it's most likely to actually even get harder and more savage. But following Jesus and to be known as a follower of Jesus will feel like swimming against the cultural current in our city and perhaps even in your friends. And so to stay faithful to him, you have to know why you're doing what you're doing. For if you lose sight of the why, then you will lose motivation for the what. So don't lose sight of the why. Don't lose sight of the why. Look at him. Look at him and say, oh Lord, what are you doing down at my feet? Look at him and say, what are you doing serving me? Look at him kneeling by your feet. Look at him, the savior of, of the world and the king of the universe, hanging from the cross to wash your sins away. So we don't deserve his love, his grace, or his service. Look at him and let what he's done for you compel you to follow him and to follow his example faithfully in doing for others what he has first done for you. It's about what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14 and 15. It's for Christ's love compels us. It's Christ's love that compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all. He goes on and says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Friends, see, nothing, nothing has helped me remain faithful to follow Jesus, albeit definitely imperfectly. But to continue to follow after Jesus, nothing has helped me do that more than, nothing has helped me serve others in light of how Christ has served me more than looking at Jesus serving me. Each day. 
that, the, that my practice for the last 12 years, more, way more mornings than not, is to spend some time just looking at Jesus. Down as crazy as that is. Looking at Jesus on the cross. As crazy as that is. And just thinking about this. Being mindful of it. I, I use three questions. I've shared this before, but just to give them to you to you again, or if this is the first time you're hearing this, I use three questions that help me look at him. And the first is this. I, I ask, uh, who has served me? And the second question I ask is, who am I that he would serve me? And the third question I ask is, how has he served me? And those three questions, God choose to keep my heart warm, even passionate, Jesus and has kept me compelled and motivated and so moved me to love and serve others to seek to serve others like Christ has served me. Because when you're mindful of how he has served you, then you have the motivation to go and love and serve others. As a, I, I, the, this practice of asking those three questions along with gathering each week on Sunday morning to take communion together Those, those practices are the three things I would say have been the most helpful for me in keeping me motivated and faithfully follow Jesus each week. And so I would say to you, uh, would, would you consider adopting these practices? Because I think it will really help you not lose sight of the 